If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by visiting chriscarl.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find links to both Patreon and PayPal, where you can make donations. Any and all support is massively appreciated and a huge thank you to everyone that has supported thus far. There's actually a very interesting side note to this podcast that we might cover at some point and it's completely unrelated to photography, but I thought I'd bring it up. Uh, you did some photography for 24 hours in A&E and you did it at St. George's Hospital. Now I have two ties to this one. I was actually on an episode of 24 hours in A&E that was recorded at St. George's Hospital and two, I was, and at at 20 years old, I was transferred to St. George's Hospital after a heart attack. So I actually have, I have some links to this and, 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 um, as I said, before we got started going through your work last night, sent me on a complete rabbit hole search through the history of photography and we're going to go into that a little bit but before we start with anything else um what was it that made you pick up a camera for the first time why do you now call yourself a photographer man um so i would probably say uh it i kind of probably owe a lot to my dad i think i've always kind of credited him as as kind of the the person who first put a camera in my hands i was i was about four or five um, and he would just give me the camera at like family get togethers and I'd, I'd just go and take pictures of people and, and actually kids have got a really interesting angle of the world. So when they got the film back from being developed, they were like, Oh, actually they're not, they're not bad. Right. I think maybe we should, um, you know, continue to, to give him the camera. So he did and they very kindly paid for, you know, my parents paid for the processing and back in the days, you know, you'd get a free film when you got the processing done and the processing was kind of a lot cheaper and you know, get it done down at boots. And so every week I would just be churning over more and more films to get processed. Um, and you know, it kind of went up and then happened in school and I was processing in the, you know, I, I went in and I was pretty much the only kid in the, in a year or maybe even the school who was interested in photography, because back then it was nerd territory. You know, it wasn't cool. <laughs> the internet didn't exist. Um, there were no influences or anything like that. And I don't think people kind of truly understood the value of it. And, um, you know, I used to get bullied at school because I would be in the dark room, like processing films and stuff. You know, it was, a, you know, it was a, it was a properly rough kind of thing. Um, but with the, um, you know, with, with the kind of, What's, what's the kind of right way to put it with with the advent of ad, ad, adolescence maybe right uh, i'm a i might have got a bit distracted i think as i got kind of like 15 16 17 i kind of thought maybe there were more fun things like parties and, and stuff like that and so i kind of put photography on a bit of a back burner and then in when i went to move to uni moved to sheffield um and found that as a university student I had a load of spare time. Right. So I, um, I would suddenly kind of go, okay, cool. Right. I'll go out and take some photos. And I also had a large injection of cash into my bank account as a result of the student loan. Um, and I've always had jobs. I've, you know, since I was, since I was a, since I was a kind of a, a small, as young as I could be, and I would be working. So I'd be doing paper rounds and stuff like that. So when I moved to Sheffield, I got a job without even thinking of it. It was just the most normal thing for me to do. So I was working in bars, um, worked in a, um, kind of like a goth clothing shop. 
right. at one point, you know, I worked in loads of rock clubs, you know, and I did all of that. And then, so I, I was earning an income. So when the student loan came in, that would buy my equipment. And mm-hmm. so I would be like, right, I got the camera. What's next? Lighting. Didn't even think about it. I just, I just assumed the, the, the guys who I'd seen doing shoots before, they all had big lights. So I was just assumed for me to do it, I had to have big lights. Um, and though that, you know, if I'd been sensible about it, I think I would have learned how to use natural light a bit better. But, um, you know, I think that was, I had an infatuation with gear. I very much had gas syndrome, mm-hmm. um, kind of going on. Um, and then, yeah, it basically just kind of rolled from there. Really. I first year of uni attendance record was 97%. I was a model pupil, uh, on my economics degree. I was featured by the, the trade press cause I was such a good student. Second year, uh, 50% <laughs> wasn't featured funnily enough, and had a couple of phone calls. Uh, they were a bit alarmed at the lack of attendance. And then in the final year, it was about 13%. Oh, wow. And I got a, I got yeah, exactly. Pretty bad. I got a phone call, uh, when I was in America, I was out photographing a slipknot for a feature for Kerrang magazine, which was, I think my big first overseas thing. And I'd flown out to Kansas city in Missouri and, um, and I got the phone call going, hey, Tom, we're going to kick you off the course. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm in America. Can't do anything about that. That's just that's just terrible timing. And the, the head of the faculty said, oh, you, who are you out with? Sorry, I had a very long night last night. I've, I've, I've became a father about 16 months ago. So currently, oh, congratulations. Sleep, is, sleep is, thank you. Yeah, sleep is <laughs> limited. Um but yeah, I had this phone call and they said, oh, you know, who are you out with? I said, oh, I'm, I'm out photographing a band called Slipknot. She said, oh, that's my son's favourite band. And I said, look, can I, can, I, can I kind of level with you? Is there anything I can do to make this work? And she said, when are you flying back? I said, two days time. She said, look, if you can get me a bit of coursework and then come straight into uni and then attend every session till the, red, till the end of term, your average will just be 1% above and you'll be fine. So I did. And I graduated, got got an economics degree from Sheffield. And I was then at that point making a career in photography and never have had to use it. I was going to say, when you started to go down the line of, is there anything I can do to help this? I thought you were going to say that you got Slipknot to jump on a plane and come over and meet her son or something. No, I did bring some signed stuff back, but, um, you know, it was, it was more just to, to say thank you rather than, <laughs> rather than do the old bribe thing. <laughs> right. I mean, one thing that jumps out looking at your work and, and it kind of, it really caught me off guard on first finding you is, is like you mentioned musicians, but firemen, actors, rugby players, lords, race car drivers, nurses, TV personalities, welders, politicians, Elvis impersonators, which is fascinating, mm-hmm. fishermen. Boxers, designers, waste pickers, authors. How much knowledge do you have to have of the subject within which they found their profession for you to be able to sort of adequately photograph them for yourself? Oh, that's good. That's a good question. Um, So uh, depending on who it is, Obviously, if if it's a craftsman, I will try and research their craft a little bit so I know enough that I can hold a conversation and they won't think that I've turned up without doing any research. If it's a celebrity, I do the same thing. Try and find um, some, you know, some, oh, sorry, <laughs> terrible, terrible yawny one. Um, 
I try and kind of find, you know, people we might have worked with in the past, um, things like that. I, I should say that when my, when my career first started, I did work with a lot of musicians. Um, but then I think you and I were quite similar as we, we both basically got told by the doctor that our hearts weren't going to last much longer. And right. that I should change my pay, change my pace of life away from the whole rock and roll lifestyle thing. Um, and actually, I realised by that point that music wasn't offering me as as many creative outlets as I think I needed or hoped for. So then I then I moved into the you know photographing people from the the list you've just read. Um, but with research, I think you always want to be able to hold a conversation. Um, with anyone you're in the room with. Mm. So I kind of, I like to say that I'm a, I'm a master of maybe the first couple of seconds of a conversation. And then I can then pick up and not, not blag it. Cause I think that would be unfair, but do I do the thing is it's very, it's very easy. What we do, we just ask people about them. And actually that will then lead on to that. And if you've got an inquisitive mind, you can, you can form that conversation. And a lot of my work is photographing people who haven't really been photographed before. Um, and, you know, listen, listening and taking an interest in what they do makes them feel at ease. Then I just, I just roll with it. I don't even really talk about the photography aspect of it. They, they know that I have that in hand and I'm more just um, take more of an interest in, in what they're up to. I mean, one thing that, that kind of jumps out with, with photographing that broader spectrum of people uh, with all those different backgrounds is, is especially internationally like you do, is the potential for like language barriers as well as, as cultural barriers. Because it's one thing to be able to understand what someone's trying to say, but it's a completely different thing to understand the background of, of where they've come from. So if, like for me to talk to someone who works in a craft who's based in Surrey, isn't going to be mm-hmm. a, a complicated um, route for me to understand their perspective. But, you know, a, a waste picker in Indonesia is going to be a, a huge jump for me to even begin to understand what their daily life is like and and how best to approach that. I guess let's start with the language side of things and, and you can segue if you like, but how do you go about dealing with those language issues? I get fixes. Okay. I, I I wish it was I wish it was you know a bit more adventurous and I said I actually learn the language and I spend months I speak two hundred and seven languages. Yeah, imagine I, my languages are um, limited. You know, I I grew up in the, the British education system, so I can speak yeah. a very little amount of French and I'm a bisschen Deutscher. Um, so a little bit of French, a little bit of German, and uh, I can say about three or four words in Portuguese. And that's about, that's about it for my, for my sins. It's very embarrassing. But when I travel to go and do jobs like this, I do link up with a bilingual fixer. Um, and what's interesting, say for example, about the, the stuff, the, the portraits I took of the amazing people in Indonesia are the local dialects are worlds apart. So our fixers would have to find then local fixers. Right who would speak, you know, the, the more traditional, uh, I guess, you know, the more traditional base language, if you will. Um, and then, then they would kind of help with the local dialect because there was a lot of, um, you know, the first two, first two days of that job, there was a lot of cross communication, um, and crossed wires, um, because, 
just because the local dialect was so different to the the dialect from the big cities. Um, so you do always have uh, issues like that. But you honestly, you wouldn't believe how far a happy, smiley face, open body language, and uh, and again asking the fixers to ask them questions, relaying it to me, and then you know being really interested by the response. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people people relax very quickly when they realize you're not here to ridicule, you're not here to victimize, you're not here to kind of, you know, take advantage of, you know, people, I think quite quickly realize that actually you're all right. And, um, you know, I think it's, um, yeah, it's just body language for me is a, a big one. And then when I'm doing the foreign, uh, the, the, the stuff abroad in different cultures, uh, if I, if needed, I'll bring in fixers. Um, you know, and, and a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff is so location dependent, even when you do it in the States, you know, I shot a project out of Mad Max themed festival, an amazing, super cool festival called Wasteland Weekend mm-hmm. and flew me and an assistant out and we went to go and, uh, do portraits of these. It's a fully immersive festival, right? So you have to be wearing the full, you have to be in costume. You have to be in your in your outfit. You have to have your backstory. And we we didn't quite realize this. We'd been told it was fully immersive, but we thought that was just a look. Um, but on the first day, you know, approached people going, "Hi guys, I'm a photographer from London. Can I take your picture?" Barely anyone was interested, and I was kind of going, "This is going to be." This is going to, if I, if I can get 10 portraits out of this whole project, that would currently be a bit of a win. Um, and then I spoke to the organizers and they said, well, what's your story? Who are you? And I was like, I'm Tom, I'm a photographer. And he goes, no, 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 no. Who are you? And I was like, oh, of course. So the following day I approached people, I said, I'm a photographer, travel from afar. I've come to document and play witness to seeing your amazing culture for the first time and really ham it up. And we got 110 portraits on the second day. So, you know, it's, it's all about understanding the, the subculture or the culture that you're photographing and making sure that people are aware that they're going to look good, I think, in a photograph. I have a little iPad mini here pretty much all the time um and it has a selection of my work on and when i approach people and say look i would like to photograph you this is how it will look people go all right cool all right it's way easier to do that than me go i'd like to i if i light you from above and i and i do this and i put in some rim lighting uh, people don't understand any of that right. and they don't they also don't care whereas if you can show them the finished image and they can imagine themselves in that, then they're in there, then they're into it. Well, it's, that's, I think, one thing that jumps out there is obviously the people outside of photography don't particularly care about photography. They don't, you know, they'll like having a nice photo taken or they'll like mm-hmm. having a nice photo of someone else, but they don't necessarily care about the process that goes in. And something I do see quite often with people, I work in the wedding industry and it's sometimes quite funny the way that people go about explaining what they're doing. And I, I keep reminding people, just no one cares. Like you, if you can do it and you can show them it, that's what you're really there to do. A lot of people aren't interested in you having long drawn out conversations about your lighting ratios or what lens you're using and why you're using it and so on. Um, if I can jump back one, one second really quickly, because yeah, yeah. Uh, it, there's a theme coming up with 
with um, people on this podcast of matching energy. And you really did touch on it a short while back, which mm. I've spoken to fashion photographers, wedding photographers, um, and to talk to someone who, you know, has photographed a, a refugee camp, a hospital, has photographed celebrities. That, that's obviously a huge range of of people with which to match energy and to, to kind of come across as, like you said, not seeming like you're taking advantage, not seeming like you're, you're mocking or anything like that. Sure. How does that approach to matching energy go about? Is it something that every single, I, I hate to use this expression, but every sim- single type of person, are you looking to be different or do you go in as, as, as a universally empathetic character, regardless of their status? I would like to think I'm universally empathetic, but you know, it's not empathetic, empathic, but the, the, the thing is, um, it depends entirely on what you're aiming to get from the session because, you know, you can match their energy, but at the same time, I think there is a, a huge part of human nature where they will try and match your energy. Mm-hmm. So if you're going in to get really serious, intimate, emotional portraits, you don't want to be laughing and joking about it. You don't want to have that mood on set. Whereas if you are trying to get really high, you know, um, smiley, happy, laughing shots, you don't want to be miserable because, you know, again, you, you got you kind of got to meet people in the middle. Um, and, a, and a lot of my work is serious subjects, but looking relaxed and happy. I've always been, I've always been someone to try and make people look as strong as I can. Um, and also not... And it, and it hasn't, it hasn't worked out for me in various situations. You know, I've, you know, a lot of people wouldn't touch various projects that I've worked on because of my, my aim of how I photograph people, my aesthetic doesn't match the story sometimes. So, you know, I, I will go, you know, I've done a series of portraits in Seoul, for example, in South Korea. Amazing, amazing area of that I went to called Algiro, and it's being redeveloped. So these where these these workshops and warehouses and stuff that have been there for 60, 70 something years, they're at risk of losing their their workshops. But every single person I met was really smiley and lovely and friendly and couldn't have couldn't have done more for us. Um and it just didn't I I understood that it would have fitted the project better, but it just didn't feel right. I can't, I can't misconstrue the people I met. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I then had to match their energy. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's, it's a, it's a real mix because there will be some times where either matching energy just won't, won't work. But as I think the the big thing for me is again, I go in with the iPad, I go, Hi, really nice to meet you. I'm Tom. Just so you know, this is what we're going for. This is what I plan to do. Are you happy with this? And I think if they know, A, they're in safe hands. B, you're in control. You know exactly what you're doing and you're not going to be, you know, argy-bargy and force them to do something they're not happy with. Mm -hmm. They instantly feel more relaxed. So I don't know. There is a huge amount about matching energies. Um, at the same time, it's also, you know, a huge amount of planning in advance and knowing what it is you're after. It's it's so it's such a fascinating subject that for me anyway, I feel like I could go down for hours because I've spoken to wedding photographers that have said that the most important thing is that you match the bride's energy because you're essentially mm-hmm. going to use her as a shield for, yep. for for any issues. 
other people that have worked on fashion shoots with you know big brands that have said that you you go in and no matter what the person running it is like no matter how much you don't you don't like them you match their energy because that's the boss and it, it's just something that i think i'm going to completely contradict myself here but it's something that people go down the route of you know gear or they go down the route of watching you know techniques or apertures or or shutter speeds or really kind of irrelevant things to communicating the message in most cases but they don't go in realizing that they've also got to be a person if they're going to photograph people and they have they have to in some way have an interaction that is conducive to them getting the result that they're looking for now i can completely contradict myself and talk about lighting because uh, I think it's a really important subject with yourself. I'm not going to talk about mm-hmm. gear um, because I don't talk about gear, generally speaking, so I don't think it's massively important. No, but I, I'm, with, I'm with you on that one. I think that photographers, you know, the, the reason we are so gear focused is how much we are told we need gear. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually you don't need tons of gear. You just need to know exactly how to use what, you're, what you have. Yeah. I think most people going out to buy new gear in most cases, they've got something in their bag that they only know about 10% of how to, how to use and how to get the most out of. So they mm-hmm. could have used the time it took to travel to the shop to just get to know that piece of gear a little bit more and then be better prepared for something in future. Yep. Um, on the subject of your lighting, I would describe it as non-diegetic. It feels like a lot of people that do sort of documentary style work or they do stuff that's... Um, to report on something that's going on or report on a, on a group of people or report on an area, they want to have things be very integrated and, and look, I don't really know how to do this and not be poor in English, but very rough and ready. They want mm-hmm. stuff to look like it looks like. Whereas with yourself. Well, I think natural. I think, I think that's probably people want the lighting to fit the subject. Exactly. I've, I've never been, I've never been that way inclined. Well, let's talk about how, how, did you, how did you come to the style of lighting with which now you kind of carry yourself and, and what was the reason for the decision to go down that route? I really like being able to produce something that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll always remember, you know, back when I started out, you'd show people the picture on the back of the screen and people would be like, whoa, like, oh, damn, this looks amazing. And that's because it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, flash is an outdated uh, style of equipment, really. As as LED heads become more powerful and and more um, lightweight and accurate and and cheaper, you know, I I feel that you know I, I have some, and so various jobs I need to shoot motion for, I'll obviously you know light it with with them. Um, but a lot of the stuff that I do, if I was to light it with LED lights, the subject would be blind. Right. You know, the, the lights would be so bright. Um, and for me, there's just something, there's something kind of magical to, I hate using that word. I hate using that <laughs> word so much, but there, but there, but there is kind of something, there is something that, you know, a lot of people now have cameras in their pockets with their phones. So for me, I like being able to produce something that that cannot produce. Right. Um, and I've, and I've just always been that way inclined. Although that said, I used to really care about gear. So this is kind of probably where it's all come from. I used to have tons and tons and tons of boxes and hundreds of bags. And I used to roll out to shoots with like 20 bags of kit with flight cases and all sorts. Mm. And now everything fits into four bags. 
Well, I mean, on that, uh, hang on, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on a moment. On that subject, mm. you have a whole section of your website talking about on-location tethering. Yes. So that just that all fits in one case. Okay, that's uh, these are. I'm yeah. I'm just double checking. I want to make sure that I understand because <laughs> I've never done on-location tethering, and it looks absolutely phenomenal. It's great. It's I, how, how much of that is down to obviously making sure that you're getting what you're happy with. And how much of that is also great to be able to show the person that's either hired you or the person in the photo? Well, those those are very there are those are two very different things. Mm. Uh, the people who is hiring, if they're on set, they will just want to watch things come through. And I have a little, um, I have a little Stream Deck Mini. I don't know if people know what those are, but it's a series of buttons with an LED screen behind them. Mm-hmm. So as and when the images come through, they can rate the images so you know if they if they really like that image that's come through they can press a button and it will just say as a client select and then that will relay it back to my capture one session and tell me that they've marked that uh, so then at the end of the day i can go through and i can see what what images they've selected um and then i can make um then i can kind of make the uh, my selections from those Okay. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, the reason I tether and the reason I have tethered now for a few years and, and actually religiously now for the past year and a half, I would say, is that I have my look dialed in in Capture One. And so I want to shoot tethered into that. So I know exactly what or as close to on location, the file is going to look like. So when people are looking at it on the iPad or on the laptop, sorry, it's about as close to a finished article as, as it will get basically. And I just like being able to provide that because a, again, that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, they're seeing a nicely, what looks almost like a retouched image straight out of camera. And there's a there's a certain there's a certain wow factor that comes when you shoot like this. There's a certain um, there's also a certain comfort factor. People feel a bit buoyed by the experience. They're like, "Wow, this is amazing! This isn't just a guy with a phone. This is you know I'm going to get pictures that I really want to show off." So, I don't know for me, it's it's impressive on on a few levels. But for me, I really just like to stay on top and and watch my histogram and. I just don't find the viewfinders on any of the the, the screens. They're that, I don't feel I find they're that accurate. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, coming into a calibrated display, um, you know, with an external monitor, so they can see it, it's it's all it all works out pretty well. Something that I I've kind of vehemently fought, and I didn't I didn't want to to see it embraced in the way it has been is is video mixing with with photography. That became a thing. Obviously, I think the 5D Mark II was the first DSLR mm-hmm. that incorporated video as, as a as a real feature. And and from there, it's kind of... I, I've been someone that's been proposing, especially when I used to be with Canon, that I wish that they would have brought out a camera that was for stills only and maybe put some of the, the processing power into making you know the camera work better as a stills camera rather than segue half of or maybe even more of the, the the computing power into a side of photography that I'm not particular or a side of the camera that I'm not even particularly interested in. But when when you say that, you are suggesting that the processing power is split in half 
for each of the yeah, you're, you've systems. Got, one thing that you'll learn over time is that I'm not of the highest technical knowledge when it comes to electrics, electronics, to... Okay. Yeah, it's just, to me, I feel like if you have something that's dedicated to one thing, maybe in terms... You mentioned earlier about the magic. Um, I guess mm-hmm. for me, the magic of the item would be that it's then particularly focused on doing one job. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of things that have one set, one set purpose, and that they do that one purpose very well rather than they split the potential demographic for sale. Now, with you, there's... I'm f- kind of the opposite. Yeah, and, and you kind of, an- you've annoyed me, I'm not going to lie a little bit, because your presentation, <laughs> your presentation on your website of mixing stills and motion, I, f- mm-hmm. I really like, and I'm annoyed oh, that I really, you. really like it. I mean, I'm, I'm a little, I'm going to be a bit petty about it, but I, I really like <laughs> it. The, the presentation of the images and the motion in the same way. You don't have to click a play button to watch a lot of the motion on your website. It sits mm-hmm. side by side. It's, it's honestly uh, a bigger influence and I'm, I'm probably willing to admit right now because I don't want to give you too much credit because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing what English people do and I'm digging my heels in. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to be very British here and be like, Oh, I, you know, no, I appreciate that. The, the, the trouble is in my, in my world, we, we aren't just photographers anymore. We have to be able to produce both aspects mm. and, you know, I, and I'm, I'm, fully all right with that. I kind of, th- what I will say quickly, going back to the tech side of things, had video not come to stills cameras in the way in the mirrorless, we wouldn't have as powerful stills cameras. You know, the, the, um, the throughput and the processing power required by all these codecs that they're shooting with the video has meant that the cameras end up with way more powerful, the, um, way more powerful for the um the still side of things. Mm-hmm. So it has really worked out in in the stills photographers favors even if they don't ever use it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, World War 2 led to a lot of cool tanks being made. I'm still not willing to give it credit because I want to be completely stubborn and old-fashioned and and complain about it. I I do have to ask because there's obviously you mentioned about shooting with flash as opposed to shooting with continuous lighting being something that yeah. you're you're much happier with. But obviously with video, you can't do that. It it is about lighting things completely differently. But there is a tremendous amount of continuity between your motion and your stills, which is really, Mm -hmm. really rare. And it's one of the things that's always kind of bugged me about people that mix the media is that one looks like one and the other looks like the other and they can't quite match them up. Yours, I I don't even... I don't want to pay you too many compliments because it's going to feel like I'm just ass kissing. I'm, I'm loving, I'm loving this. No, no, bring, no, no, no. More, the more compliments, the better. But yeah, it's just the, the, the presentation is so fantastic. How, okay. So how, how do you go about it? First of all, is this, do you go in, get the photos and then use like B roll time to get the video? And, and, and the second part to this is how, how different is your directorial style for motion compared to stills? Um, I'd say they're kind of the same because, you know, I, they're shot pretty much at the, most of the time at the same time. Um, and you know, I, I bring in a small team with me, um, and I'll have a guy that holds the cameras and we just swap the cameras in as and when it's, it's necessary. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say there's, there's much more storyboarding, um, 
there's much more storyboarding that happens now. Uh, I've I've learned, as we all have, I'm sure, learned a lot of, um, uh, you know, learned a lot of um, new things through obviously all this this lockdown. Um, so storyboarding and storytelling has been a, a big thing for me to sit down and learn. Um, but yeah, no, I just I don't know. I just I just just do it. It's, I, I know a lot of people have like kind of a mental block, um, you know, on, on video versus stills. But for me, it's, you know, I, I light in a certain way and whether I'm lighting with LED or whether I'm lighting with flash, you know, it's the same. You know, the, the portraits that I take inside, they should look identical regardless of what I'm shooting with. They're, they're using the same modifiers. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I just shot a series of portraits for the Discovery Channel um and they were all lit with continuous and the stills actually look identical to the moving image portraits and that's quite a unique like you said it's kind of it's a bit of a unique position to be in because a lot of people don't do both to that level um but i think you know light is light isn't it it's as long as you understand that it should be relatively straightforward to match them uh, yeah, it's just, I think, a lot of people that take on photography and I think the way that it's sold to people and the University of YouTube has adequately added sufficient £10 of shit to this £5 shovel is that people get so focused <laughs> on buying their way out of an issue. Yeah, that won't help. Or not approaching the issue and just pretending. Um, I mean, there's the old, uh, the old kind of stereotype of you know, bad photographers think that natural light's better than flash. So they just never learn flash. Like it's, it's just a step too far. It's, you know, it's, it takes technical knowledge to understand how to incorporate lighting into other lighting. And I think a lot of people skip that step in favor of either buying a lens that will shoot wide open at some ridiculous f-stop so that they don't have to ever think about that. Or, mm-hmm. Or they just, they call themselves a natural light photographer and pretend that it's all stylistic and got nothing to do with having a cavernous hole in their knowledge, which is fine. People can do whatever they want, but it's definitely an issue, I think. Sure. What what I would say, though, is if you are going to go down the natural light route, prepare to have a good quality back. Mm. Yeah. You're not going to have to necessarily worry about your spine so much. You'll probably get more. (laughs) Um, But, you know, as, as a, I like finding niches. And my niche is working with a decent amount of light. Not everyone can do it. Therefore, the the field of those who you go up against jobs for is considerably narrower than, say, for example, natural light shooters. You know, yep. because everyone can get access to natural light. You just go outside. Yeah. Whereas not everyone can get access to big lighting rigs and and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's... Horses for courses depends on how you want to pitch yourself out, and th- there's no real barriers to entry on anything now because of the amount you can learn online. Yeah, and and it's just I think it's the one sort of downside of of the last couple of years with the amount of free knowledge that's now available to everybody is just the fact that a lot of brands have figured that out and a lot of brands have infiltrated and there's also a, su- a sufficient amount of people that have worked out that they can make money um, from making videos that cross monetization lines without actually having to put in much content. So you find out how many eggs they had for breakfast before they don't tell you anything particularly important and they call themselves an educator. 
Yes, I think one of the most important skills you can learn if you are going to try and learn stuff online is look at the photographer you're learning from. Look at their client list. If they are talking about shooting big campaigns but don't have any big campaigns on their website, if they're talking about being represented by an agent with no contact details on their website, or if there's all sorts of, you know, different, um, you know, there's so many different criteria i feel that that makes a high quality photographer if the, if they're if you're looking at their work and going it's not very good <laughs> then maybe take what they're saying with a pinch of salt that said you ne- you never stop learning there's a lot of people that aren't selling their photography they're selling to photographers and there's i think there's a big oh, difference sure, absolutely yeah there, there really is i know we're pushed for time and and i have an absolutely enormous subject i do want to move on to so no 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 go 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 if I go for one last question just about yourself in terms of your style of photography, and it might be a bit, mm-hmm. of a, a bit of a horrible one, but how much of your style, uh, where you are right now, because obviously it's a constantly changing thing and it's, it's fluid and it's going to be something different in a couple of years' time than what it is now, but where you are right now, sure. how much of that mm-hmm. style has been influenced by feedback and inster- external factors like the people that hire you, the briefs that you're given, versus your actual personal taste? Oh, right. Where do you want me to, where do you want me to start? Uh, I feel that my, my work bluntly in the past couple of years got a bit weaker when I started listening to a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And now I have brought it back completely to doing what I enjoy doing. And obviously when clients talk to me about fulfilling a brief, I will fulfill the brief. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good solid brief fulfiller if you will. Um, and I also, I really like working with clients and stuff like that. But when it comes to personal work, that is now purely me. So, you know, I'm doing a new shoot, uh, next week, uh, with a rugby team and I can't wait. I'm really, really excited. So we've got the, got the assistants all lined up. Everything's going to be good. And there's no outside influence. I'm just going to go back to doing what I really enjoy as I'm sure a lot of us have had a bit of a realization through COVID and things like that, that for me, for, you know, I didn't get into photography to make loads of money. You know, I'm a fully, fully qualified chartered surveyor. I could have gone down a very different route, mm. um, but I didn't fancy it. I wanted to get into photography because I loved photography. Um, so now I'm just going back to shooting how I love shooting. And if people like it, then, you know, let's work together. If they don't, there's hundreds and thousands and millions of other photographers. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they'll be able to find someone who more fits the bill. I think what we have to remember as photographers is that whilst we might be able to shoot every style under the sun, we might not be right for every job. So I'm now kind of focusing really in on finding my, finding my niche and, you know, making sure that I can really please the people who do want to work with me. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people sometimes lose sight of is that there are jobs that you aren't right for and it's sometimes a good idea to not do them for yourself. Well, yeah, exactly. I was I was in touch with someone the other day and I said, oh, you know, really nice to meet you. How are you doing? Can we work together? And she said, I, uh, sorry, I work on Dove and I don't think you're right. And my response was, I don't think I'm right for Dove either. <laughs> I don't, I don't see me shooting a Dove campaign. Right. And it's, and it's a, a, you know, I think as photographers, you have to have a certain level of self-awareness that you're not right for that. You know, you're not, you know, the correct photographer for the job. Um, 
and you know it's it's how you portray yourself your whole aesthetic your brand your ba- your brand attributes need to align with the brands you want to work with you know if you shoot dark stuff like i do the chances of you shooting uh you know for for dove are, are negative you know it won't happen and that's because you know the people the brands they're very very smart people mm. who can instantly see whether a photographer or a photographer's work is going to work with a brand. And as photographers, we could do with saving them a bit of work and not reach out to everyone under the planet and just um, hone down and focus in on people we want to work with. Yeah, and they've, they've got a brand image. They've got people that are now scientifically trained in what will and won't work for that brand. And you might be able to produce something that's phenomenal that would be would be great for a subset of people, but it's not what they're looking for, and you just have to accept that and and move on. Exactly. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to take a little bit of a dark turn, but Ooh. really for the process of actually giving praise and recognition, where I think it's quite often not given. Um, but also just to kind of learn here, this is basically an idiot abroad, but for photographers at this point. <laughs> There's something about a particular thing that you photographed, which I think is a, a significantly more important part of the world that we're living in than maybe people realise. And that is the, the issue of plastic and the, the issue mm-hmm. of pollution in the oceans. Um, I know that we talk about global warming and we talk about you know pollution and so on a lot on a daily basis, but I feel like we're getting to a point where A, it's white noise because we've turned mm-hmm. the outrage up to 11 on everything. So now nothing sure. sinks in with anybody. You know, we had, we had, we, we've had wild, crazy, angry protests for a year straight, pretty much. Um, as we try and fix social problems in countries, we've had climate change stuff going on for years now. And it, it definitely feels to me that a lot of stuff isn't really having an impact because it's all brought to, to the attention of the public by the same people that will write a headline about how much weight a celebrity's put on or about whether or not someone's back drinking Diet Coke. It just feels like we've kind of lost sight of adequate amounts of outrage. Yeah, perspective. Thank you. Sure. And looking at your images, and I'm going to butcher this, so please do correct me, but... No, no, no. Go, go to town. Nelayan? Oh, Nelayan, yeah. Nelayan. Um, the Indonesian fisherman and seeing... Seeing the images of the plastic in the water, the amount of trash that is just in the oceans around them and what they're having to live with as a reality, which we basically see as an Instagram post or a 30 second clip on the news between finding out mm-hmm. um, who's done what, you know, in terms of politicians doing something stupid or whatever. Um, I don't feel like it's really sinking in with people how bad the problem is. It's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And you've seen it firsthand and I don't want to speak to your experience at all. Mm. But it really put me in mind yesterday of Kevin Carter, who's, um, for those that don't know, the, the photographer uh, of the struggling girl, the girl, the girl in Africa with the vulture following her, the starving girl. Ah, oh, right, yep. Obviously, it had a huge mental impact on him because he committed suicide not long after what he had seen in Africa during, you know, apartheid and war and and so on. And I just, I wonder. You're a person... Where were you born out of interest? Surrey. Okay, so you were born in Surrey. Mm-hmm. Without massive, you know, centuries of man-made intervention, you're not supposed to have seen most of what you've seen. Yeah, you're, you're, probably, you're probably right. And 
we'll, you know, I'm happy to kind of completely give you the floor here, but how much of seeing, you know, a country's coastline decimated by plastic and seeing how people that have much less than a lot of people where you're originally from have suffer with the consequences of places like England not being particularly conscientious. And I'm not saying it's only England. I'm not saying it's, it's, I think human beings generally are terrible, but it's very geocentric that richer countries buy more things. So there's, there's a chance that we're contributing significantly more than other countries. How much does mm-hmm. that actually hit you when you go home after the day taking pictures and you sit down and you really think about things? Quite a lot. It's, it's a, I think the trip that, the trip that most changed me was, um, when I was, I was photographing in Doro refugee camp, uh, or on the, the Syrian border, mm-hmm. you know, when you see, um, the, the effects of war, um, with, with injuries and, you know, people losing their lives and you, you're witnessing children dying. It's actually, that is hard. That is really, really hard. But then, you know, I came back from that two weeks later, I was flying out to India to go and photograph victims of acid violence. Mm. You know, I've, I've covered some very tragic, um, subject matters. Um, and the, the trouble is, it's, it's, it's very hard to, um, you know, talk talk about, you know, how much they've, um, you know, how much they've affected you because actually these people are affected for their entire lives. You know, yes, they changed me. And yes, I think about them every day. And yes, I think about them all the time, but they're still there living that life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 um, you know, effectively a tourist in a way, I drop in and I document, I witness, and I, I have the incredible privilege to meet these people at the same time, you know, and I try, I try and help, you know, try and raise awareness and, and try and do my bit at the same time. You know, these guys, you know, think about the, the, the fishermen dealing with all the, the plastic issue. You know, I think about that every time I'm touching plastic, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's not, they were pretty, it was pretty shocking the level of waste, you know, there was a, there was a, on one of the beaches, there were a group of children playing football and me and my fixers were talking and we were just saying, look, these, these kids have never known this beach to be a beach. They've always just known it as the, that's just, you know, the plastic's normal to them. The plastic is as normal to them as sand is to us. And that made me really sad. And when they were playing football, one of the boys ran over a glass jar and it broke and cut his foot. And that was just normal. Mm. That was just a normal occurrence. And it was really, it was really heartbreaking. Um, and the thing is, we can't have as much of an impression uh, or an effect as I think we we would all like to be, but we can all do our bit. Um, and yeah, it does, it, it does, cha- it does change you. I think I was very happy go lucky before I went and did all these trips and mm. they definitely, they definitely sober you up and I don't take any of it lightly. And I think about them all the time. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a dark and very intense experience, but for the same time, you know, what I'm feeling is kind of irrelevant because actually these people have to deal with it all the time. So it would be wrong for me to go, Oh, I'm so changed. Oh, I'm so different. You know, 
yes, I am. But at the same time, you know, these people are, are still there, you know, they're, they're still living that life. And actually, I, you know, I, I never want to forget that. Well, there's definitely a stereotype with the British coming from America at the moment, which is to do with colonialism and uh, almost a, a lack of heart, which I think is really unfair on the majority of British people actually being very good at, at setting themselves back and putting other people to the forefront like you just have. And I'm going to completely disagree with you. It actually does matter how you feel about it because I, I understand you not wanting to be the one that promotes your own feelings on the subject, but if it's affecting you, I think people are mis misappropriating the idea of the communication being important in that sure. you have someone go and take, go out there to take pictures and, and there will be a subset of people, probably even people listening to this that will say, oh, well, you just went there, took photos and came back. Well, mm -hmm. actually it's an incredibly important part of the process to raise an issue on anything, to actually be able to communicate it. And the more and more we distrust media in a lot of cases for the right reasons and in some cases for the wrong reasons, having evidence of the issue and, and not just evidence in terms of, yes, it is happening or no, it isn't, but scale and perspective of the issue and how it's affecting mm. human beings is incredibly important. It's, mm. it's, it changes perspective for a lot of people and, and it's never going to be an overnight thing, but it's, it's a, a slow process. My dad would say it's like water on stone. It takes time, but it will work. And I think mm -hmm. the lack of, I don't want to say respect because that makes it sound almost like bravado-ish. I'm going to say respect because I can't think of a non-bravado way to say it, but the lack of respect for what you have to go through to get those images, the images that we've seen of Vietnam, the, the images we saw of World War II, the images we've seen of, of migrant crisis, of war and so on, has all been taken by someone in most cases what we see has been taken by someone who's traveled there to photograph it. And that means you have, sure. you have to take on the cultural adjustment. You have to take on so much of shifting a human being that shouldn't really be shifted around the world the way we are now and take on all of that, but also take on the burden of, of the humanity and the morality of what you're seeing. And I think it's really underestimated. One thing I don't, I don't know how you do is how do you keep a photographer's hat on when you're seeing all of that? Um, I kind of, you know, when you mentioned photo wedding photographers using the bride as a shield, actually kind of the camera is the same, the same thing for me, mm -hmm. you know, when I pick up the camera and I look through the viewfinder, I just kind of go into a zone of, you know, being at work, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of, when you, when you're in it and it's, and that becomes normal, I guess you become the initial shock drops down and then it's just kind of replaced with a bit of sadness. You can kind of, you tend to be able to power through that. So yeah, I just, I wouldn't say technically they're my best work because actually they, they were, you know, all, all of those things are, are upsetting. So, you know, I don't feel like I do my best work when I go out and do these human stories mm -hmm. um, because actually it is, it is hard, you know, to, to do this. And I, and I do, I don't shoot them in a, in a, what I guess people would normally consider the natural way. I do go out with lighting and I do, you know, do these set portraits and stuff. And it's, you know, it's a bit more time intensive. And what's great is you do manage to hear their stories. You know, it's rather, rather than just kind of run in, grab a shot and run away. You know, I do get to sit down with them and, and talk to them and, you know, hear when the plastic became a problem and, you know, 
get more of the detail around it. So mm. it is hard to to keep your photographer hat on, but I, for me, I, I like to think that my human hat's always on first mm-hmm. and then the, the camera hat just goes on top of that. Well, like I say, I think it's a, a massively underappreciated part because you have to take on so much of a burden on top of having to be a great photographer to get the images. And I'm just, I'm literally just sticking a line in the sand there where people, if they don't like that, they're more than welcome to jump off this ride at this point. <laughs> One thing you have said there is, is kind of about, about story. And it's, it's mm. obviously a huge through line of your work is, is the context of what you're photographing. Something that's quite funny from a portrait photographer's perspective is I have, I have a real bugbear, a real something that pisses me off no end, which is when portrait photographers, especially ones of no immediate importance in terms of they photograph for themselves and that's great. That's wonderful, but they're not taking a picture that's going to define a generation in terms of, you know, it's not the Afghan girl that they're taking or anything like that. And they'll give a very long, usually a stolen poem or lyric title to their work. And they'll almost feel that they need to explain an image that is just a portrait of a person. And I'm a portrait photographer. I'm aware of the importance of what I do. How important do you think it is, given the the kind of intense things that you photograph, how important are, are images... Is it for images to be able to tell their own story or do you feel like every image should have a story connected to it that should be told? Um, I tend to, the the trouble is I think if an image needs explaining, then you maybe haven't necessarily done your job Mm. as well as you could have done. Mm. For me, I like Mm. to, people on Instagram, they will scroll. They won't often read the caption they'll scroll at the image and, and actually I, I much prefer just to try and get it all, you know, all done in the image. So, um, so people don't need to end up reading tons and tons of stuff. I just, I feel that if you do it that way, people won't read the message and the message is lost. Whereas if you have it all included in the image, I think people are probably more likely to take note. And something that you do a lot in your work is, is like seen in detail. You, you have these, the, the images, the portraits of the fishermen or the portraits of the craftsmen, but there are also mm-hmm. little detail shots that you do. I can think off the top of my head, there was images of firemen's helmets hanging, I guess, either on the truck or on the station. I'm not looking at the image right now. I'm mm-hmm. having a moment, but you have, you know, the images of the plastic in the water and the fishermen completely separate. And it's almost a photo essay in the sense that one sets the scene and and then there's small, like, I don't want to say B-roll because it undervalues the photo, but there's there's additional photos to add to the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the thing is for me is they they add to the general feel of it. I'm hoping that the, the images kind of give people a bit more of a, um, not necessarily a grounding, but kind of a bit more of an understanding of, yeah, they're just, they're just elements that add to the story. Mm. And they help, they help, um, hopefully for me, they help seat the portrait, uh, with a little bit more context. Yeah. And it's, it's just something that, um, you don't see very often. I mean, you just, it, so, something you just said about if the photo doesn't tell the story, maybe it's not the best photo for what you were trying to do, or it's not communicating what it should be communicating. But there's also mm-hmm. huge value in in those insert shots, I guess it would be in, in a cinema sense. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Fincher and he, he always says you don't go for close-ups unless it's really important because if you show a close-up, you're saying this is an important part of the story. And if you're doing a close-up sure. on everything, 
then people just completely lose the awareness of what is and isn't important. And I think that's something that stands out of your work. It does feel very, and I, you hate, you said the word magical earlier and you didn't like it. I hate the word cinematic because I feel like it's real. People now think cinematic just means orange skin and blue everything else, but there's actually a cinematic element to what what you do in the sense of it's storytelling through frames that actually interlink. And again, I'm still kind of annoyed that you're able to mix motion and stills so well. (laughs) You have all of these wonderful collections of work and you photographed really influential people in in status or in what they've been in the story of humanity and all this other, you know, wonderful, wonderful imagery. But do you have a plan or do you have already, um, or do you want to plan a sort of magnum opus, a, a work that defines you as a photographer? Oof. Sorry. I don't know. I, no, no, no. Sorry. I, I don't think there'll ever be a, a bit of work that will define a hope actually weirdly that there's not, a bit of work that defines me because the trouble is I have had that at previous points in my career. You know, I got, when I was working in music, I became quite well known for, um, oh, I'm so sorry about the yawning. Oh my God. <laughs> I haven't had my coffee this morning. Well, I haven't had one of my three coffees. The, um, I got, I got very well known in, in music photography early on in my career for shooting one image that became quite well known of a band. Um, and the trouble is, people then just ask you constantly to recreate it. So having had it on a very minor scale, I hope that people like my work enough that they hire me and we work together, um, but they don't ask me to recreate certain images. So I just, I, I feel that if I can keep doing this and make a good career out of it, then that's, that's my, that's my plan. That's my goal. And I, um, you know, Quite like to pay the mortgage off at some point. <laughs> so, you know, just, I just, I'm, the thing is I'm, I'm in this for the long haul and I love photography. I love taking pictures. There's certain, there's a, there is very much a part of me that does go to a different place when I'm taking pictures. I feel, um, you know, I was, I was bullied a lot growing up. And actually for me, photography was always an escape and actually photography is still a, still an escape. I, um, I love, um, I love my job and I've, I've, it's, it's afforded me privilege and opportunities that I would never have had, had I chosen any other career. And if I, you know, you ask for a magnum opus, I've achieved more than I ever thought I would achieve. Mm. I traveled more of the world than I ever thought I would, you know, by 25 than I think I ever would have done in my entire life. Um, I've seen and met amazing people from all walks of life and I feel incredibly privileged to have done so. So actually, do I want anything that defines my work? No, bluntly, because I do photography because I love photography and I've I completed you know, when people say, oh, you know, have you got a five-year aim or or whatnot like that? I used to do that. And then I achieved all my aims. Maybe I didn't set them high enough. But, <laughs> but, for, but, but for me, you know, I ticked everything off the box. And, and actually it's, I feel incredibly privileged to have had an amazing, amazing career. I'm 36 now and I've done more in my, effectively my short, career. I've only really been doing this since I was, you know, left uni at 21. So 
been doing it 15 years and I've done more than most most people do in their entire career. And I feel incredibly privileged and thankful that I've been able to achieve that. So is there a magnum opus? I hope not. I hope I just continue to enjoy it and keep moving forward and keep changing and keep telling stories, really. Well, you, you've talked a couple of times about photographing musicians and I, I read the story on your website about photographing uh, Duff McKagan, um, where <laughs> yeah. the, the photographer that followed you on, on the day actually didn't have the gear they needed to do the job they wanted to do. And you- oh, bless him, man. I, a French guy. And he turned up and didn't have uh, a UK plug. Oh no! He had a he had a Euro plug and didn't have the adapter. Um, luckily, because I've travelled so much, I know a way around that. So I showed him it, and I can't obviously describe it because it does break all sorts of electricity rules. But you know, I, sh- <laughs> I showed him showed him how to do it, and he was like, "Whoa, that's amazing! Thanks very much." But you know, photographers, I feel have this, there's a, there's, I don't know, there's something in photography that makes a lot of people quite nasty and competitive. And I get it. Like I hear you because we are in one of the most competitive industries, but you can be nice and succeed. It can happen. Um, and it does happen. I just feel that actually, you know, we should support each other more and, you know, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. You know, I, I, I do really appreciate it. And, you know, it's, it's, things like this that I would like to do more of and just be nice and, you know, be nice and have fun. That's all I really want to do. Yeah. I mean, I've literally got in my notes that there's an emphasis on competition over community in photography quite massively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know whether that's, you know, down to consumerism or if that's down to um, ego or what it is, but it's, it's something that does drive me a bit mad. I mean, we're in the ballpark, so I'll just ask you, you have, like you just said, you've done so much in 15 years. I'm still annoyed about the motion thing. I'm not going to let it go. You, you cover such a broad range of subjects. You photograph people from all cultural backgrounds, you, you know, as a photographer accomplished would be an understatement. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that, but that's very kind. Well, you've got to remember I'm, 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 I'm allowed my perspective. Don't steal my perspective here. <laughs> of course. Ab- absolutely. Who would I be to take that away from you? Exactly. It's all I've got at this point. Um, <laughs> my perspective of looking out the same window every day during a lockdown. Um, yeah. I, in terms of issues or mistakes or problems that you're seeing in photography now, because, you know, it should be easier than ever because it's easier than ever to have your work displayed for people to see it. I know it's harder in terms of the number of fish in the water, but there's more water now than there was before. Sure. There's cheaper gear available. It's, there's a lot of free knowledge about. What, what are the issues that you're seeing in photography generally? And I, I don't obviously not asking you to cure the world here, but just in terms of what jumps out. Let me, let me talk about kit quickly. I know you don't tend to talk about a lot of kit, but, let me just let me just cover it because I think if if I could go back and give myself one big bit of advice, it would be don't buy that. Don't buy don't buy that thinking it's going to make you better. You know, buy it when you really need it. So mm. I've now got a rule. If I have things, if I have uh, a need for something on a shoot, I have a little book that lives in my camera bag, and I write down this would have been useful here. If I then write that in again another time, I buy it. Right. Because I've needed it. You know, I've managed to make do without it, but but I have needed it. There's so many things that we're told that we need 
We absolutely don't. We absolutely don't. And so if I could travel back in time, I would tell myself, don't buy that medium format camera system. Don't spend 40 grand on that. Don't buy the Leicas because you really want the Leicas. <laughs> you know, re- really, you know, all all this time people are buying the kit. Actually, it really, it really doesn't matter. You want, you really want to have your, your, your vision in mind, your artistic, you know, you really want to have the result in your head and then use whatever you need to achieve that result. Um, and for a lot of people, it won't be very kit heavy and more power to them. You know, like you say, it's a, it's a big old, um, it's a big old pond and, you know, talking about cost of kit, for example, when I first started out, I bought a one gigabyte IBM micro drive, which was a mini hard drive that was in the shape of a compact flashcard. But it was one gig and that cost me 400 quid. You know, the cost, the cost of tech has come down to the point where it is no, there's no barriers to entry. You know, you can go and pick up a camera from PC World and it'd be plenty good enough to compete. Um, and with that in mind, it's going to be the finished result. It's going to be the art that sets you apart. And um, just, yeah, just just always think think about that. It's just, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that, that, you know, we had the Megapixel War where mm-hmm. it was Canon and Nikon and they both seem to have shot themselves in the foot in terms of keeping up with the Joneses with whatever fashionable nonsense is popular on Instagram and making sure that their cameras are relevant to people that take pictures of their own cameras, which is a very, <laughs> it's a very bizarre genre of photography. I can't quite get my head around. Mm-hmm. Let, let's, let's finish up because you've been so unbelievably kind with your, with your time and I, I really can't tell you how much it means. Is, is there any a particular moment with, with all that you've done where you really felt like you'd taken things to another level or that the experience had, had kind of transcended where you were before it as a photographer? Um, yes, I guess there have, I guess there have been various, various moments, but they were all quite a long time ago. I think I've been operating at a certain level now for a while and I can't, you know, I think I remember my first advertising job. That Mm -hmm. was a, that was a big, that was a big milestone for me. Um, and I remember, the first time I remember feeling very like proper, like a fish out of water when I was in Juba airport. Um, and my cases had been taken and I was trying to chase after people trying to get my cases back. You know, there's always been, there's always been moments, um, in my career, um, you know, flying to America to go and be with Slipknot, for example, that was quite a, that was quite a, a big moment. And, um, yeah, I I don't know if there have been. I mean, obviously there have been, but the thing is, I think as as the experiences as you go as you go on in your career, the experiences that you have are larger, and so I think that the experiences that you've had previously they they don't change in significance, but you do sort of. I guess they do change in significance a little bit because it's kind of. It's all part of your story, isn't it? Is there a diminishing returns on it, I guess? Because you say like your first advertising job's a big step or, you know, the first time that you've, you've flown out to photograph, you know, when you went out to photograph the fisherman, that's got to be different to photographing 
slipknot in terms of like the, the the scale of the of the job required and so on sure that becomes diminishing returns right because if you photographed a migrant crisis or the plastic crisis or you photographed the the images you took in i think it's in jordan mm-hmm. are yep. just that would change me as a human being and as a photographer and you know it, it, it's got to be like that. It's got to be harder to make that big of an impact on you because you've, because of what you've seen previously. Yeah, it does. And also I just feel that you get used to, you know, there, I remember when I first saw my images in print, um, it was 2004, no 2000 and yeah, 2000 and no, it couldn't have been, I was at uni. So it must've been, I can't even remember. It must, yeah, it must have been 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of going, whoa, my God, <laughs> this is, this is, how will I ever be able to surpass this? Um, and, you know, now I've had, you know, international magazines and, and covers and billboards and, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. And, and you do, you do get used to it, but there is still part of, you know, that, that pride, that feeling of seeing your work out and about that doesn't, there's always going to be that. There is that kind of element which doesn't doesn't change, um, and I I really I still feel incredibly proud when I see my images out and about, regardless of how big they are. I still I still feel that maybe I get a little bit of that original feeling because I remember exactly where I was when I first saw. I had a double page spread in Photography Monthly, and I remember I remember opening it up and double double like you know, taking a second look. I was like, whoa, my God, that's mine. I was on a flight on a university trip out to Barcelona and couldn't tell anyone because no one thought it was cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I was just like, you know, I was on my own, couldn't phone anyone, couldn't tell, you know, couldn't tell my family. I was just like really proud. Um, and oddly now, whenever I see my things in print, I do think of that, that flight. Odd, really, when you think about it. But yeah, it's, I guess there is a, there is a law of diminishing returns, but I think I still get that excitement when I do see the the work out and about. Well, back in 2018, I asked some, some people that I knew and some, some people that I didn't know so well about podcasts that are available for photographers and mm-hmm. listened to a couple of episodes of a couple of recommendations that I was given. And the, the overwhelming sense of selling you gear or selling themselves was what I tended to find. And I didn't, I didn't find myself being immersed particularly. And whilst I do think I sound like someone that's doing a recreation of a crime scene on crime watch, I don't think I've got the voice for this. I feel like, uh, I'm into it. I'm into crime. I'm into crime watch stuff. So you're good. I look like it as well. If that makes you feel any better, (laughs) but yeah, not, not feeling that I may be the most adequate person for the job, but just wanting someone out there to be, producing podcasts that were about more than just buy this piece of gear or here's our sponsor. Mm-hmm. I started this podcast and it's taken me on a little bit of an insane journey, especially with lockdown. Mm-hmm. This being the 153rd episode at this point, And I've spoken to people from pretty much everywhere. That's a, that's a, that's a real commitment. Uh, four during the week of Christmas, which was pretty insane. Um, wow. Fortunately, no one was allowed Christmas in England. So I had some free time. <laughs> you yourself have a podcast and I want, there to be as many people out there that are listening to this to be able to find other podcasts that maybe don't feature my voice, but feature your wonderful tones. So please plug away. That's well, are you sure? Well, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. I, I run, uh, the exposed negative podcast with my good friend, Greg Fennell. 
Um, and it's very open, honest chat between working commercial photographers. And we have um, some amazing guests from photo consultants through to, you know, some of the, the highest end celebrity LA based uh, portrait photographers uh and it's the it's the same as this one it's available on all good pod, yeah all good podcast services and um thank you very much for letting me plug it well no i just think that uh, the more the more out there for people to listen to the better because i don't think it's something that there's a tremendous amount of um so it's always nice to find uh, new voices and and especially in your case someone with such experience talking about the things that you do Last point, and this is this is the whole purpose of the podcast, is just to basically turn myself into an algorithm and make people like stuff that I like so that there's more of it. <laughs> we need to plug where people can go to find all, all of your amazing work. And uh, for, for reference, I would really recommend people that are addicted to Instagram to get off of it and head to your website, preferably on a nice big screened computer and really take some time to do some reading and, and look at some images if possible. But please plug away. Oh, that's very kind. Yeah, I I, th- I feel that with with Instagram, it's you don't quite get the full the full kind of impact. So hopefully, yeah, if you go to the website, it's uh, over at tombarns.com and it is um, full of galleries upon galleries of my work um, with you know moving image, like you said, and there's there's loads of there's loads of stories and and hopefully some interesting stuff there. So um yeah, so if you want to find me, it's tombarns.com and then very imaginatively on Instagram, it is also tombarns.com and that's D-O-T-C-O-M after Tom Barnes. And uh that's it. It's been phenomenal to talk to you. I really can't tell you how much um it has meant to me. Um, I've got, a, I've still pleasure. got a Thank sore arm much. from writing notes up yesterday for this. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been intense. Thank you so much. Hey, no worries. Thank you.
I just woke up from a broken dream